0: Hello again, podcast listeners. I am Dr. James Cole, and I am again happy to be here to discuss my latest chapter of healthcare in America, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I'm going to start today by stating my bottom line up front, and that is, we have a serious mental healthcare crisis in this country, and we need to do better. In my opinion, we as a nation have really dropped the ball on this matter. This is embarrassing, and it's shameful that in many ways we have medically marginalized an entire group of people for so long. I believe that America's mental health tragedy should be among the most important public health topics of future roundtable discussions in the office of our nation's Assistant Secretary of Health in Washington, D.C. Now, before I even start getting into the meat of the matter, I have to admit that I've been working on this podcast for about nine months. And I've been putting off recording it for a very long time as I know that mental illness is somewhat of a taboo subject. But I need to talk about it because adverse mental health has been a problem forever. Whereas many healthcare topics were also once on the unmentionable list, almost all are now very much accepted, very much embraced, and freely discussed. But mental illness is still a topic many people would just prefer that we don't talk about at all. I'm not a psychiatrist, a psychologist, or any type of formally trained mental health professional for that matter, but I can tell you with unequivocal certainty that we have a serious mental health care problem in this country. I work in a hospital that serves a population of about 400,000 people within our catchment area. Yet, my hospital is the only one among all of the other hospitals that offers any inpatient psychiatric services. The others simply stop caring for patients with mental health conditions and they close down their doors and their psych wards. I've been a doctor for almost 30 years, and during that period, I've treated a lot of patients whose conditions are complicated by also having serious, poorly, or entirely untreated mental illness. I would bet that almost everyone listening to this podcast has a family member or at least a close personal friend whose family member suffers from some sort of diagnosed or undiagnosed mental illness, which causes significant distress or hardship from time to time. Because I've treated so many trauma patients with uncontrolled psychiatric illness, my experience in caring for these individuals has made me keenly aware of how inadequate mental health care results in so much, so much destruction amongst these patients and their families and causes such a profound loss in human productivity. I believe that if our nation was to one day endeavor upon a path of single payer health insurance for all, I would start by immediately covering all patients with any sort of major psychiatric disorder. I am certain that many reasonably productive and functional members of our society are living with mental illness, but don't ever wish to discuss it with anyone. I know they are on psych meds because I see their charts when referred to me for other issues, but nowhere in the medical record is any documented psychiatric disorder. The stigma of a psychiatric diagnosis remains a very ugly aspect of healthcare in America, and most people don't want to be diagnosed with a mental health problem. Because so few people ever want to discuss mental health, many people may not even realize that they have a problem. I've also met a number of people over the years outside of the doctor-patient relationship who I would say express varying traits of a number of different mental health conditions. I have no idea if these people are doing well or if they are suffering in silence. Whereas so many want to avoid the topic altogether, we absolutely do need to talk about mental illness. And just like so many other unpleasantries in life, our nation's mental health care problem will not go away by turning a blind eye to it. Do you remember the story of the emperor who had no clothes? Nobody felt comfortable saying that the emperor was naked. Instead, they allowed him to parade around through the streets in the buff rather than point out what might have been perceived as embarrassing ridicule. In many ways, I feel that the emperor has no clothes story is similar to the mental illness narrative in our country. In my opinion, far too many people feel uncomfortable talking about mental illness in general. I believe that mental illness is far more prevalent than most people want to admit and too many people and families are forced to live with ongoing problems causing so much adverse ripple effects. Far too many people cope as best as they can with varying degrees of success entirely on their own. Others may want to seek professional help but simply cannot find an appropriate psychiatrist, psychologist, or mental health counselor to help them on a regular and ongoing basis. Regarding the stigma of mental illness, whereas most people wouldn't mind being labeled as a diabetic or formally diagnosed with having high blood pressure or even cancer, most people these days do not want to be labeled as having schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, or a number of other significant mental health illnesses. But even if somehow these particular patients wouldn't mind being labeled as such, unless they're able to regularly access the mental health care system, they won't be able to get the routine counseling, psychotherapy, medication adjustments, or prescription refills which are so essential for maintaining their long term mental health well being. Oddly enough, whereas psychiatric floors were once commonplace in all hospitals, many no longer have mental health units of any sort. Thus, patients needing admission for an exacerbation of any significant mental illness often have to be transferred to another hospital. And if all of the mental health beds in the regional referral network are full, then patients suffering from a mental health crisis may need to be transferred to a hospital very far away, often too far for a family member to conveniently travel. And all too often, the organizations which do offer the psychiatric services aren't able to find enough psychiatrists, psychologists, or other professional mental health staff to meet their needs. Thus, it can be next to impossible to get a psychiatrist to see a patient admitted to a general hospital being treated for any one of a myriad of serious health conditions if that patient also is experiencing a mental health crisis. If a patient is admitted to a hospital with, say, a heart attack and is also suffering from kidney failure, a heart specialist and a kidney specialist would both certainly be consulted and both specialists would manage the patient's separate but very real conditions. But if that same patient admitted with a heart attack is also experiencing a severe suicidal ideation problem due to an exacerbation of unstable bipolar disorder, let's say, a cardiologist will urgently see the patient, but it's highly unlikely that a psychiatrist will also get involved in a timely manner. In my experience at a number of different hospitals, a psychiatrist will only consult and round on a patient if that patient is admitted to the psychiatric unit. But A patient will not be allowed to be moved to the psychiatric unit until all of the other medical or surgical conditions, which prompted the patient's visit to the hospital, have been completely resolved. Thus, even though a patient is admitted to a hospital with a mental health crisis, the psychiatrist may not necessarily see the patient for days or even weeks. I have struggled with having to care for numerous trauma patients who are also experiencing a concurrent psychiatric crisis throughout my career. As I have said, I am not a psychiatrist, but if a trauma patient is admitted following a motor vehicle crash or a gunshot wound and is also in need of a real mental health care professional and no psychiatrist will come to the bedside, I have no other option than to try to manage the patient's mental health crisis to the best of my abilities. That, my friends, is a real problem. If a patient's mental illness is so significant that it results in him being admitted to a hospital, then certainly that patient should be managed by a psychiatrist but all too often, that is not the case. Again, I state that there is a serious mental health care crisis in this country, and per my assessment, there are four contributory reasons. One, people often do not wish to disclose the presence or extent of their mental health problems. Two, there is a lackluster willingness for society as a whole to talk about mental illness. Three, we as a nation provide suboptimal access to outpatient mental health care. And four, a great many of our hospitals lack inpatient psychiatric services. But I'm going to stop here for a moment and go off on a tangent to discuss something entirely different, something entirely unrelated to mental health. But it's very germane uh, during this particular phase within the COVID pandemic. And what I'm going to talk about is vaccine research. We are so fortunate to have so many amazing scientists who labor away for years, often decades, discovering and developing the various technologies which ultimately give rise to a medical breakthrough. And in this particular case, I'm giving my shout out to all of the scientific researchers who have contributed over the past decades, which ultimately led to the development of the new mRNA COVID vaccines. I know that some of you may feel that because we've only known about COVID for not even a year, that there's no way that a safe vaccine could have been developed so quickly. However, vaccine research has been ongoing for many decades, and in fact, the first virus to have had its DNA sequenced was in 1995 when scientists mapped the entire genetic code of the influenza virus. Building upon that knowledge, using the gene sequence of the SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus, they were able to identify the particular area of the COVID-19 viral DNA which codes for a specific spike protein expressed on the outer layer of the virus. This particular spike protein is what makes the viral pathogen uniquely identifiable, but it does not in and of itself cause disease. mRNA stands for messenger ribonucleic acid or messenger RNA for short. By assembling tiny pieces of specific messenger RNA, literally the coded string, which when translated assembles that particular spike protein, scientists were able to construct a vaccine comprised of this tiny bit of mRNA encased within a tiny fat layered membrane. When this non-infective, scientifically created substance is then injected in the form of a vaccine, the spike protein is made and our own body creates antibodies and activates our T cells resulting in immunity against the real and actual COVID virus should we inevitably become exposed. mRNA vaccine does not enter our cell's nucleus and it does not alter our own body's DNA. It merely allows for a non-infective foreign protein to be made in minute quantities which allows our own body's immune system to react as naturally to this new foreign protein as it reacts to any other foreign molecule. Thus, without ever introducing the actual virus, without injecting a less pathogenic form of the actual virus, and without uh, using any harvested piece of the actual virus, our body develops immunity to the actual disease-causing agent. Thus, nobody can get COVID from this vaccine, and in up to 95% of those immunized, they will eventually become resistant to the actual COVID virus if exposed at a later time. Creating this vaccine was truly an amazing accomplishment and was the culmination of decades of previous and ongoing research by the many scientists who never receive any real accolades but I attest that our research scientists truly are exemplary of the good of healthcare in America. And I applaud every one of them for the truly remarkable work they do. And for those of you who want to learn more about the COVID vaccine, you can find a treasure trove of excellent information on the U.S. Food and Drug Administration website. Whereas I know that many of you out there will be sucked into the seductive realm of the social media bandits, posting baseless claims of poisonous disinformation, know that unless 70% of our population becomes immunized to COVID-19, we will never achieve herd immunity and getting us all back to living a normal life may take years, if not longer. So get your vaccine, America, and stop the madness. And now, moving back to our main discussion, Mental health remains in somewhat of a dark place compared to so many other aspects of healthcare in our nation. But looking back at the history of how those with mental illness were treated in the distant past, it has certainly been far worse. It was once accepted that mental illness was a form of demonic possession or spiritual punishment for past wrongs committed by an individual or one's family. Those afflicted were often labeled as mad and often confined for a lifetime in unhygienic institutions where abusive and degrading treatment was the norm. In the mid-1800s, via the continuous efforts of Dorothea Dix, a number of government-funded hospitals were constructed for the exclusive purposes of serving the mentally ill. Whereas these facilities were an improvement over the previous alternative and served as the standard for all those suffering from mental illness for about a century, understaffing and underfunding became a serious problem, leading to a resurgence of abuse and poverty-like conditions for those living in what were commonly referred to as the insane asylums. By the mid-20th century, psychiatry was an accepted specialty of medicine, and psychotherapy as well as antipsychotic drugs were prescribed with great regularity. Opponents of the psychiatric hospitals of the time pushed for deinstitutionalization of patients, arguing that those afflicted with the neuroses and psychoses would do much better if they could be allowed to intermingle within their communities and continue to receive mental health care as outpatients. And thus in 1963, legislation was passed which drastically changed the rules on how persons with psychiatric illness could be institutionalized. Only those who posed an imminent threat or danger to themselves or others could be committed to one of these facilities against their will, thus clearing out the state-run psychiatric hospitals and cutting the rate of mental health hospitalizations in half over a 10-year period. Psychiatric hospitalizations were cut in half again within the next decade. And by 1980, the number of hospitalized psychiatric patients was only about one quarter of those hospitalized in the 1960s. But where did all of those patients once deemed in need of mental health care go? A number of community-based mental health clinics, ambulatory treatment facilities, and mental health group homes were created, but these have not been successful in many ways. Understaffing and underfunding led to access issues, and patient noncompliance with follow-up or with prescription drug therapy led to a number of psychiatric treatment failures. Psychiatric patients were no longer institutionalized, but were once again living in a state of poverty. All too often, they were homeless. And those existing with untreated mental illness were obvious, often frightening to those in the communities in which these patients lived. Those who were able to cope in silence had no interest in being identified or labeled, as those with obvious mental illness were often shunned by society. But for those who truly needed hospitalization, fortunately, there were still seemingly enough psychiatric wards in the community and in the county hospitals. But not long thereafter, the number of practicing psychiatrists fell below the needs of society and very few new doctors were entering psychiatric residency training programs. Both inpatient and outpatient psychiatric services became very hard to find. And that coupled with the fact that government-run insurance programs reimbursed mental health professionals and hospitals so poorly for mental health care that many hospitals started closing down their psychiatric floors and often eliminated mental health services entirely. More and more patients with bona fide mental illness simply could not receive treatment. Those with private health insurance did have more mental health care options compared to those who depended on state-funded Medicaid programs, but far too many patients with uncontrolled mental illness could not hold down a job, and thus a large number of patients in that category eventually depended on Medicaid. And as a result, more and more people could not access a mental health professional, more and more could not get their medications as prescribed, and the cycle of untreated mental illness continued. Many untreated patients often turn to self-medication with alcohol and street drugs, which often led to chemical dependency and all of the problems associated with substance abuse. In the most unfortunate of situations, too many people turn to suicide to end their emotional pain, which in my opinion is the ultimate reflection of our ongoing failure in this country to adequately help those who suffer from the various forms of mental illness. Fortunately, however, at around the turn of the century, the U.S. health system started creating more mental health professionals, yet psychiatrists remain the second highest in-demand physician specialty in this country. There has been an increase in the number of psychiatry residency programs, but still only about 4% of all graduating physicians choose to pursue psychiatry as a specialty. Fortunately, many more clinical psychologists, such as the PsyDs, have absorbed an increasing share of the unmet need for mental health professionals. Combined with the number of new licensed clinical social workers, the total number of mental health professionals continues to increase, but we definitely do not have enough. Perhaps more unfortunate and noteworthy is the overall kinder and gentler attitude these days toward those who suffer from mental illness. I do believe that the millennial generation is much more accepting and understanding of all of society's problems and in general has made it much more acceptable to talk about mental illness rather than being shunned. The more enlightened attitudes of our younger generation toward mental illness, as well as increased awareness of the prevalence of this pervasive problem, are among the first steps toward the destigmatization of mental illness, and in my opinion, that is a movement in the right direction. No less than 20% of all American adults have some sort of clinically diagnosable mental illness. That's at least one in five people out there who have some sort of significant mental health issue. And that does not even take into account the children, or at least those less than 18 years of age, who have a psychiatric problem. Whereas the real numbers aren't completely known, it is estimated that up to half of all adolescents have some sort of diagnosable condition at one time or another. Interestingly, for whatever reason, people seem to mellow with age and somehow the overall prevalence of mental illness uh, decreases over each subsequent decade of life until a plateau is reached, but then starts to again slightly increase during the retirement years. So what are the specific types of mental illness I'm referring to, and just how prevalent are they? According to the National Institute of Mental Health, the most common form of mental illness is anxiety, and approximately 20% of all Americans deal with this long-term. Next highest on the list is Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, or ADHD, which is identified in about 15% of patients. Up to 10% of all Americans have some sort of depression, and approximately 9% Um, have one or more of the personality disorders. Between three to 5% of patients suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder, and a similar percentage of people have bipolar disorder. One to 2% shares of the population each deal with either obsessive compulsive disorder, a true eating disorder, or are diagnosed with an autism spectrum disorder. And finally, less than one half of 1% of all the population has some form of schizophrenia. Thus, mental illness includes an array of disorders, and one in five of our friends, family, neighbors, and coworkers are likely among those afflicted. Thus, we need to be more open, compassionate, and understanding of those who have mental illness, and it's very likely that someone very close to you is among the sufferers. Whereas I will not go into a lot of detail on all the variants of mental illness, nor even cover all the diagnoses I've already mentioned, I will discuss some basic information on several of the areas I would like to highlight. I'm going to start with the subject of anxiety. Anxiety is something that most people experience now and then. It is usually associated with an uncomfortable situation or an unpleasant circumstance in life. Like fear, a bit of anxiety can be healthy. It alerts us to potential dangers. It tweaks our senses, heightening our awareness to our surroundings. It causes our mind to rapidly turn over all the possibilities as to how we might react. And it's usually self-limiting. For most people, anxiety is not a chronic and ongoing feeling. And for most, anxiety does not interfere with everyday life. But for about 20% Americans, anxiety can be debilitating. For those who suffer from an anxiety disorder, it causes repeated, excessive, and often unrelenting worry about the most basic aspects of everyday life. For some, anxiety can be so intense that it rapidly escalates into an incapacitating experience where one simply cannot cope with the moment causing them to unravel both emotionally and physically panic attacks ensue, and these can create the perception that one is actually dying. The heart pounds, there may be a heavy pressure deep within the chest, one may experience difficulty breathing, and an intense headache or overwhelming brain fog may completely eclipse one's ability to think. Some only experience anxiety in particular situations, such as when out among a crowd of people, when engaging in a new experience such as a job change, or when asked to speak in front of a group of people, but for many, anxiety is a constant and persistent problem where excessive Out-of-proportion worry about routine everyday life events can be paralyzing. Anxiety can interfere with or completely ruin one's prospects of completing an education, holding down a job, or maintaining a relationship. I told you that about 20% of all Americans have some sort of major anxiety problem, but even more than that, perhaps up to 30% of all Americans will experience an episode of disabling anxiety at some limited time throughout their life. An anxiety disorder is much more common among females and is most common in people 18 to 60 years of age, but many adolescents experience severe anxiety as well, and for some, it paralyzes their developmental years. Anxiety treatments include psychotherapy or counseling, drug therapy, and lifestyle changes. A licensed professional mental health counselor, psychologist, or psychiatrist can talk patients through their worries and teach them techniques to help manage their excessive fears, allowing them to cope with everyday life. Certain antidepressant medications, such as the SSRIs or the SNRIs, can help ameliorate anxiety symptoms. Mood-stabilizing agents can also be helpful, and in in other cases, especially for those who experience severe, time-limited anxiety attacks, benzodiazepine drugs can calm the nerves. But benzodiazepines, such as clonazepam, alprazolam, or lorazepam, can be habit-forming, and one could quickly become addicted to these drugs without even knowing it. Benzodiazepine withdrawal can be powerful and at times life-threatening. In fact, benzodiazepine withdrawal is not unlike alcohol withdrawal, where the heart races, the blood pressure escalates, the body shakes, delirium overpowers the mind, and in worst cases, some people experience full-blown grand mal seizures. It is always best to have a professional carefully titrate all anxiety medications, as a little dose is often effective, but for others, much more is required because all drugs have particular side effects, maintaining a regular and ongoing relationship with the professional who prescribes these drugs is essential to ensure that symptoms are optimized and side effects are minimized. Major depression has plagued members of society for as long as the scribes have been able to document our history. It has been identified in Middle Eastern writings as long as 4,000 years ago, and the ancient Greek physician Hippocrates described in great detail the condition known back then as melancholia, which we now know was clearly major depression. The great mathematician Isaac Newton had depression, Abraham Lincoln had depression, and Winston Churchill also had major depression. Fortunately, for the huge number of Americans who cope with depression, a number of very famous modern-day celebrities such as Brooke Shields, Owen Wilson, Angelina Jolie, and Jim Carrey have all very openly discussed their battles with major depressive disorder, hopefully playing some role in helping remove the terrible stigma associated with psychiatric illness. Depression causes a persistent feeling of sadness, a loss of interest in most things, which once caused joy or pleasure, and difficulty controlling one's emotions, often resulting in dysfunction in the home, at work, or in society as a whole. People with depression often feel a sense of hopelessness or a generalized sense of emptiness in their lives and may have difficulty sleeping, thinking, or making the simplest of life's decisions. Depression often leads to body dysfunction, such as otherwise unexplained chronic pain. Recurrent thoughts of of death or contemplating killing oneself may invade the mind, and for the most vulnerable, suicide is the most tragic end result. Nearly 1.5 million Americans attempt suicide each year, and about 50,000 are successful. Suicide is the tenth leading cause of death for all Americans, but for those less than 35 years of age, it's the second leading cause of death. Almost everyone who commits suicide, that is greater than 90% of them, had been previously diagnosed with one of the most common mental health disorders, which is why it's so important to get all people who are dealing with mental illness the ongoing professional help they need before it's too late. Fortunately, there have been great advances made in how major depression is treated, and whereas drug therapies have come a long way, those who achieve the greatest success receive both professional therapy, such as counseling or psychotherapy, in addition to antidepressant medications. Tricyclic antidepressants were once very popular and were the most common class of drugs prescribed to to, uh, treat depression in the past century. But the tricyclics had a number of serious side effects and were unfortunately the cause of death in many of those who suffered from major depression who intentionally overdosed on these medications. Fortunately, the newer SSRI and SNRI drugs are much safer and because there are so many different medications within these classes, many more patients are eventually able to find the right drug and the right dose of that drug to achieve a better life. But because different drugs achieve different results in different people, it is important for patients with mental illness in need of these medications to have them prescribed by a practitioner who understands mental illness and has an interest in maintaining a long-term relationship with his or her patients. Drugs may need to be changed and dosages may need to be escalated or tapered down to achieve the optimal results. And that cannot usually be accomplished if there's no well-established and well-maintained doctor-patient relationship. And thus, that reinforces my claim that we need more psychiatrists. Whereas a myriad of different physicians, nurse practitioners, and physician assistants prescribe antidepressants and other mental health medications, unless the prescriber has significant knowledge and interest in mental illness, suboptimal results are often all that can be expected. Whereas post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, seemingly only affects about 3-5% of the U.S. population, it is increasing and is likely much more common than the numbers reflect. Over three million veterans have served since September 11th, 2001, and among those who served in Iraq and Afghanistan, depending on the survey used, between 13 to 30% of those surveyed disclosed symptoms which could be consistent with PTSD. The key contributing factor in the majority of those who experience PTSD is some sort of intense psychological or physical trauma oftentimes perceived as a genuine past threat to one's life, which in some way continues to live on in one's mind for years, months, or a lifetime following the particular traumatic experience. Flashbacks, nightmares, incredibly detailed visions, or some other sort of intense experience immediately brings the individual back to that inciting traumatic time in their past. Otherwise innocuous triggers can instantaneously take one back to that painful experience, be it the armed assault, the car crash, or the incoming rockets, or border rounds of the combat zone. A hyperreactive fight-versus-flight response ensues, the heart races, the body tenses up, and one prepares to react. Those who experience mild PTSD symptoms probably do so with little to no notice from those around them, but those who experience severe disabling PTSD symptoms can manifest them very profoundly. Post-traumatic stress can cause extreme guilt, or perhaps extreme guilt causes post-traumatic stress, regardless of which leads to which the end result can cause extreme anxiety, depression, physical and mental exhaustion, headaches, chronic body pain, and suicidal ideation as a means to escape the recurring thoughts. Many of those with PTSD consciously do whatever they can to avoid potential triggers, but when this becomes impossible, angry outbursts and other like inappropriate behaviors are the end result, often to the embarrassment of the individual, friends, or loved ones. This can eventually lead to social isolation and extreme dysfunction within the entire family. Turning to alcohol and other substances to escape the intensely visual recurrent thoughts is quite common, and the substance abuse and all the problems associated with substance abuse are a recurrent theme. PTSD treatment centers on professional counseling and psychotherapy and is often augmented with psychiatric pharmaceutical agents. Psychotherapy is extremely important as those with PTSD often need to talk through the extreme traumatic experience in detail to get to the root cause of the mental disturbance to determine the exact source of the greatest emotional pain. Some people with PTSD benefit from exposure therapy whereby professionals take their patients through the experiences previously avoided which trigger the PTSD response. It's a kind of desensitization therapy whereby repeated exposures in a protected and safe manner eventually blunt the overactive pathological responses. Therapy seems to be most effective if it's started earlier in the course of one's mental illness rather than after it's been established for long periods of time. So timely intervention is key, which is another reason why we need more mental health professionals and increased access to care. There are only a few drugs which are proven to help those suffering from PTSD. All those are antidepressants within the SSRI or SNRI categories and include sertraline, paroxetine, and fluoxetine. But none of these drugs are considered first-line treatments for PTSD and, in fact, should only be offered either in conjunction with intensive psychotherapy or following a less-than-desirable outcome following psychotherapy. Suicide among veterans is 1.5 times higher than the general population. And because PTSD is well-represented among combat veterans, mental health services must remain a high priority within our VA hospitals and clinics, and in all of our civilian healthcare systems as they too serve our nation's military veterans. Perhaps the mental illness with the greatest stigma associated with the label is bipolar disorder. Once referred to as manic depressive disorder, people with bipolar disorder experience wild mood swings over a variable period of time with extremes of hyper alertness and excessive energy on one end and terrible depression on the other. Although only about 3% of the population is diagnosed with bipolar disorder, it is possible that this too is vastly underreported as many of those who live with this problem only seek help during periods of depression and may not even perceive that their manic episodes are problematic. Those with bipolar disorder often fall into their deep depression phase, ruminating over the guilt associated with all that happened during their manic phase. For example, while manic, patients may go on endless shopping sprees, going deeply into debt, purchasing countless luxury items they never really needed. They may stay awake partying for days at a time, perhaps enhancing their experience with cocaine or other street drugs, only to crash really hard when the body simply can no longer remain awake. Those in the manic phase may rapidly plunge into intimate relationships, perhaps more than one at a time, only to realize the horrors and the consequences of their impulsive decision making following the crash. And thus lots of dysfunction in their interpersonal, professional, and financial lives is often the result. Some of the world's most creative and productive individuals have bipolar disorder, doing their best work during their periods of heightened alertness and unopposed energy. Those diagnosed with bipolar disorder include musicians, actors, business moguls, scientists, astronauts, news anchors, and politicians. Mariah Carey, Mel Gibson, Demi Lovato, Ted Turner, Frank Sinatra, and Jane Paulie are just a few of the very famous people who have been diagnosed with this and who have come out to share their difficulties of their disorder with others. This is incredibly important, in my opinion, as this is another step toward helping destigmatize mental illness so that those who continue to suffer in silence don't feel the need to keep their disorder hidden from the rest of the world, fearing adverse repercussions." Fortunately, there is treatment for bipolar disorder, which includes both psychotherapy and medications. The key to pharmaceutical management of bipolar disorder is to control the manic episodes, and therein lies the problem. Most people like it when they're up, when their energy levels are high and they're productive, despite the trouble they often get into due to the resultant impulsive behaviors. But controlling the mania prevents the crash. The goal is to create softer, less notable peaks and valleys in the mood, And allowing other mechanisms developed through psychotherapy and counseling to cope with those more manageable swings. One caveat with drug therapy is to be very careful to not treat the depression phase with antidepressant drugs, as this may trigger an unopposed manic episode with an even greater crash that follows. There are only a few drugs out there which are approved to control bipolar disorder, including a very few of the commonly prescribed anticonvulsant medications. It is very important that someone suspected of having bipolar disorder see a mental health professional who can discern between major depressive disorder, bipolar disorder, and the other mental health problems, which may have some overlapping symptoms, thus again arguing the need for more psychiatrists in this country. The last of the mental health disorders I'm going to discuss is schizophrenia. People with schizophrenia have fractured thoughts and perceptions of the world around them. They may regularly experience visual or auditory hallucinations, their thinking may be profoundly delusional, and they may have a completely dissociated thought process affecting how they interact with society. The hallucinations can be very disturbing whereby someone or something imagined threatens them or orders them to commit some dastardly deed, such as killing one's own child, nothing which is based in reality. Schizophrenics are often very paranoid and perceive that they are being watched or monitored through their phones, televisions, or other hidden devices. They are often paranoid of others around them, and they may lash out violently toward another who they perceive as a threat, but in reality, there was no threat at all. Uncontrolled schizophrenia often leads to exacerbations of other very serious health problems such as heart disease and uncontrolled diabetes, as these patients don't trust doctors and don't trust the medications they're prescribed. It is said that schizophrenics often lose up to 30 years of their lives as a result of untreated mental and associated physical illness. Whereas there are many drugs out there which can successfully help manage and control schizophrenia, often allowing an individual to live a relatively normal life when compliant with his or her medical therapy, many patients simply stop taking their meds when they're feeling well. Inevitably, they again unravel into a psychotic state and become too dysfunctional to recognize they have a problem and often too paranoid to trust that their medications are safe. And thus treatment of schizophrenia must be a lifelong and continuous process. A mental health specialist needs to see these patients regularly so as to monitor drug compliance and help detect the possibility that patients may be deviating from their prescribed health plan. I feel that I've made it perfectly clear that mental illness is a profound problem in this country. And I previously stated that I believe that there are four contributory components to this crisis. Perhaps this podcast and others like it may help others understand that mental illness is not a rare phenomenon. And thus, if you or someone close to you has any of the mentioned symptoms or problems, know that countless others are also suffering from these same conditions and all should seek treatment. This requires admitting that there is a problem, but knowing that you are among the many and not the few, this should help at least some of the fearful to come out of hiding. Perhaps the fact that so many celebrities have come out and have talked about their own disabling mental health disorders, coupled with the premise that our younger generation is a much more compassionate and understanding group, this may allow mental health to be discussed more openly, eliminating the stigma of mental health labels, just as was accomplished with breast cancer and other once-stigmatizing conditions but I feel that our society's biggest challenges to managing mental illness will continue to center on the difficulties accessing mental health services and our nation's insufficient supply of psychiatric professionals. The reasons for those last two points mentioned, I believe are twofold. One, our health insurance and third-party payer plans, most especially the state-run Medicaid plans and their derivatives, do not adequately reimburse for psychiatric services and thus there is no financial engine to drive our mental health programs. This tells me that those who control the financial purse strings in this country do not value mental health professionals or the services they provide. Without adequate financial incentives to develop additional outpatient clinics or to create inpatient psychiatric service lines and without better reimbursement for financial services to more appropriately pay our counselors, social workers, psychologists, and psychiatrists, we will never have enough of them to meet our nation's mental health care needs. Why would anyone ever pursue any of these career pathways if they knew upfront that they would forever be paid far less than any of the other healthcare professionals? Why go into mental health care knowing that you will always be among the lowest-paid members of society who were required to earn and pay for master's and doctorate-level degrees? And thus, I believe that our government needs to increase reimbursement for all mental health professionals and for every important service they provide. We simply must devote more financial resources to caring for the large portion of our society who suffers from mental illness." And the second major reason why we don't have enough psychiatric services is because our medical schools have not done a good enough job teaching students the nuances and complexities of mental illness. And we certainly have done almost nothing to make our medical students feel that pursuing a career in psychiatry is a noble and worthy endeavor. Whereas the notion of becoming a neurosurgeon or a heart surgeon or a cardiologist or an emergency medicine physician may seem glamorous to many or may give the perception of greater stature among their physician peers should those specialties be pursued, no such glamour or elevated stature is ever the case these days when talking about psychiatry. In fact, I know that most medical students are dissuaded from ever even considering applying to a psychiatric residency program by the countless physicians and all of the other specialties who mentor medical students during their third and fourth year clinical rotations. This is wrong, in my opinion. We need good doctors of every sort and every variety. Whereas we all have our own thoughts and opinions about what specialties are interesting or worthy of pursuing, medical educators should encourage medical students to consider all options, including psychiatry. In fact, because there are so many more unknowns than knowns about mental health, I believe that our best and our brightest medical students should be encouraged and even groomed to pursue psychiatry. But in order to make this happen, we will need the support and the encouragement from all of the other doctors out there and the financial incentivization to do so. I believe that we as a nation should set a goal of increasing our number of psychiatrists by 50% over the next 10 years. That would increase the percentage of our nation's doctors who are board-certified psychiatrists from 4% to 6%, not an unrealistic or unobtainable goal in my opinion. I feel that this would be an excellent endeavor and should be championed by our nation's Secretary of Health and Human Services and supported by all of our nation's medical societies. Without change, we will likely have a long way to go toward improving mental health care, and we will continue to have a mental health care crisis in this country. At this point, I've introduced the topic of mental health care in America as a taboo subject with a broken system, insufficiently supporting those who suffer from mental illness. Patients are afraid to talk about their symptoms. People in general are reticent to discuss mental illness, and we lack sufficient mental health specialists and psychiatric services to support those in need. For a variety of reasons, mental health services are poorly funded. And for all the reasons mentioned, I feel that significant restructuring of mental health care in America is called for. Perhaps our legislators and our Department of Health and Human Services might initiate the changes needed, but that will never happen unless the people of this nation endorse doing so, and thus, if any of you agree with my, with my position and have any interest in expressing your views to our nation's leaders, I encourage you to do just that. And on that final note, I will conclude this episode of America's Mental Health Crisis. I am Dr. James Cole, and this is Healthcare in America, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Thank you again for listening. This podcast and the rest of the podcasts in this series reflect my opinions and do not necessarily represent the positions of any other institution or entity. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to Marie Hathaway for the artwork and for producing this podcast. And I hope that you enjoyed the guitar music because that is me playing and taking my own creative liberties. And we hope that you will again join us For our next episode of Healthcare in America, the good, the bad, and the ugly.